Malachi chapter 2. I was saying to Janita this morning, it's amazing how I said we were going to be in the book of Malachi for five weeks. And it is today five weeks that we have been in the book of Malachi and we're still only on chapter two. So I was very ambitious in what I wanted to do, but it didn't work out. (laughs) It didn't work. But we'll see. Malachi chapter two. Again, this is going to be part two of the message from last week. Implications of the fatherhood of God. And just by way of a quick review, um, I want us to remember that uh, last week we read through this passage and, and Malachi is trying to help us to see that God is our father because he created us, right? Now, again, we're not talking about creation in a general sense, uh, um, in the sense that God created the whole world and therefore God is our father. Uh, That is in some way true. But more specifically, Malachi is talking about um, us being the people of God. Right. We being the people of God. Right. God has saved us. We are in a relationship with him and therefore he is our father in a special sense in a way that that people who are not Christians or who not do not have a relationship with Jesus cannot claim. Okay. And because we have God as our father in this special sense, there are ramifications and implications of what that means for our lives. Okay. And so I gave you all three things uh, last week that that uh, that this means right so we i'm not going to go through these um the first two we covered that last week and we went well over our time um you can go on uh, the faith life app and and listen to that message uh if you um if you missed it but uh first we said we talked about um the fatherhood of god and our essential unity right we are united as one right since we have this relationship with god uh, through jesus christ and because we are united as one, every decision that we make, right, all of our lives impact the other people in the church. And so we have to be very careful of the decisions that we make because of the impact that it has on the rest of the body and because we want to make sure that our decisions don't undermine the gospel that we so love. The second thing that we talked about last week in reference to the fatherhood of God uh, is uh, is our responsibility to make sure that we marry only other Christians. Okay, and so we spend a lot of time addressing the fact that we as believers are not supposed to marry unbelievers, what that looks like, and all of the implications for that. Today, I'm going to talk about the third part, And this is going to, again, be another difficult part, uh, but I'm not going to kind of rush over it. Right. I'm going to kind of touch on, I mean, address it. And um, again, I want us to recognize that even in in addressing this topic of divorce. Right. So we're talking about the fatherhood of God 
and divorce. Uh, even with talking about this, even when, when Malachi, um, God says through Malachi that I hate divorce, I want to reiterate the last thing I said last week is that he does not say he hates divorced people. Okay. So I want us to, to keep, that in, keep that in mind um, as we work our way through this. The goal is not to um, make anyone, um, you know, feel bad or anything like that. We, but we still have to address what the word says <coughs> and, and the implications that that has for each of our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So with that being said, let us read. Malachi chapter 2 verses 13 through 16 and then we will definitely pray. <laughs> Malachi chapter 2 verses 13 through 16 reads, And this you do as well. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor at your hand. You ask, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did not one God make her? Both flesh and spirit are his. And what does the one God desire? Godly offspring. So look to yourselves and do not let anyone be faithless to the wife of his youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and covering one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to yourselves and do not be faithless. Father, we thank you for allowing us this opportunity to come and to spend time again around your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in each of our hearts and our minds. I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be able to hear your word and to hear your heart behind your word. And at the same time, I pray, Lord, that you would safeguard us from uh, from feeling um, um, the emotions of sadness or um, or grief or guilt or any of those things. Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to to really understand your heart in this passage. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, to wrestle with this, uh, but at the same time, allow you to speak. We thank you now for all these things in Jesus name. Amen. A wedding is a beautiful event. A man and a woman have developed a bond and a love so strong that they desire to spend the rest of their lives together. They have invited their family and friends to witness their big day where they make a public commitment to one another with vows similar to this. Okay. And these are the vows that, that uh, everyone in some you know, way or form uh, they say that these words. Okay. Will you have this woman to be your wedded wife? And the same is true. The woman changed the word for, for husband, right? Will you have this woman to be your wedded wife, to live together after God's ordinance in the estate of matrimony? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health and forsaking all others, keep yourself only for her so long as you both shall live? All right, and then the man and the woman both answer, I will. 
After this, each person continues their vows. They say, I take you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. And in that moment, at least one couple that I married, the wife stopped and laughed after the richer or for poorer part. <laughs> in sickness and in health, <laughs> to love and to cherish, till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance, and therefore I pledge to you my troth, okay? And I, I'm like, I always like, what does that mean? I had to look the word up myself. I'm like, I'll be saying this stuff, and I don't remember what these words mean. All right, so each person takes a vow to love, honor, and cherish the other person. Each person takes a vow to remain sexually faithful to the other spouse. Each person takes a vow that no matter how bad things get, including health and finances, okay, which is important since they keep saying that the number one reason marriages break up is due to finances, okay? You're supposed to be faithful no matter how bad it gets, including finances and health. Only death is supposed to separate this couple. And each person ends their vow by pledging to the other person their troth, which means they are making a pledge of faithfulness. I pledge to you, I will be faithful. They are both vowing that no matter what circumstances arises, arguments, disagreements with family and friends, other men or women, poverty, or even a disabling accident, they will be faithful. Now, again, we're broadening the understanding of faithfulness because most times we think of faithfulness only as sexual fidelity. But our marriage vows, in our marriage vows, we state we are going to be faithful in every area of our lives. These vows that most people rarely give a second thought are extremely serious. And in the next few minutes, we are going to see why. Now, um, I know this message is going to be difficult because it is a very sensitive topic, right? This topic of divorce is very sensitive. Um, and it is especially sensitive because approximately one-third of all marriages end in divorce. <clears throat> but um, I, I'm not going to dance around the topic, okay? I'm not going to dance around the topic, um, and, uh, you know, because again, um, we have to be able to receive the whole counsel of God, right? Everything that God says, what did I say last Sunday, right? Uh, we have to be able to take, uh, the Brussels sprouts, <laughs> right? With the candy yams. Okay. We gotta, we gotta be able to take both, right? We gotta take, take it, take it all, right? All of it is important for us to, to be healthy. So, it's especially sensitive because, uh, of course, one-third of all marriages uh, do end in divorce. Um, but we have to be very clear in verse 16, God is adamant, I hate divorce. And I know that there um, are a ton of objections uh, to, uh, to this. I know that, uh, that, that um, over the years I have gotten what if to death. Okay, like, well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, what about this? I'm like, okay. Um, 
however, we're not gonna. I'm not gonna get into the whole what about this, what ifs, all of those things. Like, you let God speak. Okay, God is gonna say exactly what He means. And so, uh, today, what we want to do is look at the topic of divorce from God's perspective, right? Not from our own perspective. Now, Malachi begins by addressing a complaint by the people that God is not answering their prayers. And we all know how this feels. Uh, we may be in the middle of a, of a pressing need, whether that's a health crisis, peace in a troublesome home, or needing finances to start a new business venture that we would like to do, right? We all recognize that the circumstances, once they get to a certain level, is beyond us. We, we try and try as much as we can, but when the circumstances get beyond what we know we can do, right, immediately we recognize that we need to turn this over to God. And when we turn things over to God, we spend our time praying and praying and praying and praying, asking God to do what only he can do. And Sometimes when we are in these circumstances and we spend our time praying and asking God to do things for us, it seems as though the more we pray, the more distant God feels. And so we cry, we make promises to God, we double down on our efforts, right? We promise God, God, if you do this, I'm going to give more, right? God, if you do this, I'm going to pray more. God, if you do this, I'm going to read my Bible more. God, if you do this, I'm going to be more consistent in coming to church, right? We, we make promises. We double down because we really want God to answer our prayers. We try all of these things to get God's attention, and to get him to respond positively. But then it still seems sometimes that God is still silent. And we don't know why. Many people at this point become so frustrated that they give up on God. They may begin to think there is, is no God, right? Or they begin to think that serving God is not worth it because he does not answer our prayers. But what if God is not the problem? <laughs> what if God is not the problem? How often do we stop to think that maybe the problem lies with us? What if the reason that God is not answering our prayers is because of the way we treat people in general and how we treat our spouse specifically? Malachi makes this case in verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read these verses again, but from the New Living Translation. Verse 13, here is another thing that you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I will tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. The people were weeping and crying 
<clears throat> and begging God to answer their prayers, but God remained silent. He wouldn't answer their prayers. He paid no attention to their sacrifices, and he ignored their offerings. He took no pleasure in them, and probably like us, the more distant they felt, the more effort they exerted to get God's attention. More fasting, more prayer, more Bible reading, consistent church attendance, more promises. And yet still God still ignored them. And why did God ignore them? Malachi says it very plainly here. He says, the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her. Now, again, I want to reiterate that when we hear you have been unfaithful, we always hear a think about intimacy. <laughs> but that is not in the context of this chapter at all. It is not talking about sexual intimacy. He says, I witnessed your vows, but you have been unfaithful to her. Now, again, you know, we're exchanging this back and forth, okay? So he's talking about husbands. It was a predominantly uh, a, a male-dominated uh, uh, society, and therefore that men had more power in, in this society. But again, this applies to both of us, right? You could, we could today say to our wives, you've been unfaithful to your husband. How have I been unfaithful? By running up that credit card bill without him knowing? <laughs> okay. Okay, so, so let's keep keeping it in, in our minds, right, that, that thi this goes kind of both ways. God is saying, remember those vows that you took, the ones where you promised to love, honor, and cherish one another, the ones where you promised to remain sexually faithful to one another, the ones where you pledged to remain faithful to one another until death, regardless of how bad things got. Your family and friends were not the only ones there to witness you make those vows. I, I know you only saw the people sitting in the seats, but they were not the only ones there witnessing those vows. God was also a witness. Now, I, I love doing weddings. Um, I love being able to... Um, to you know, literally sign marriage certificates and know that you have, have brought couples together. They don't do this in Maryland anymore, but, but many states still require you to have witnesses present when you are getting married, right? And some states still require uh, uh, your wit um, at least one of two witnesses to sign your actual marriage certificate. Okay. John Benton makes a heart-stopping comment in his um, commentary on Malachi. He says, if you are married, do you remember who signed, whose signatures are on your certificate? Do you remember the witnesses that signed your marriage license? <laughs> Malachi, he goes on to say, is reminding us that in a very real way, the signature of God is upon that certificate. God's signature is on your certificate because God was the witness at your wedding. And that should give every single one of us <laughs> pause. We should stop and think, 
about the vows that we made. On our wedding day, we just sometimes, we just repeat words that the pastor tells us to say without even giving it any real thought. But God is present to witness those vows, and God is going to hold us accountable for every period, single period, word, exclamation point. (laughs) You know how y'all do in in text? Every that single word. (laughs) He's holding us accountable for every single word. Every single word. Now, people come to me all the time about this topic of divorce. And usually when, we're, uh, when I'm having a conversation with someone about the topic of divorce, uh, they usually have a logic, okay? And the logic centers around one or of two arguments. First, people will say, I'm not happy and God wants me to be happy. Okay. That, that's usually logic number one. And usually when people say that to me, I'm genuinely confused because most of the people I've married, okay, that, that, that we had, if I'm having this conversation with, but, but I'm genuinely confused because the word happy is not in any of the vows that I just read. It's not there. I I can go back and and read it to you again. The word happy is not there. Um, It does say, however, for better or for worse. And people are all excited about the better, but then they say, I'm not happy, and they forget about and for worse. (laughs) Second, people will say, I didn't wait on God. This person was my choice. He was not, or she was not God's choice. So therefore, you know, <laughs> you know, I picked the wrong person. And so I just need to go find the person that God has for me. <laughs> okay. And again, I'm genuinely confused because the vow the person took said nothing about having the right person. And it said absolutely nothing about having the person that God wants for you. You made a promise, and God was present to witness that promise, and God is going to hold you accountable to that promise. Now, it's interesting that in the, like, in, in the vows, like, as I was reading through the book, it's, it's striking because, you know, I mean, the pastor always says, you know, that marriage is not to be entered into lightly or irreverently, right? But, but, but patiently, right? It, th- you got to think about this. And, and then we say these vows, they go, do, 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 read the vows real quick. And then we kiss the bride and we're going about our business, okay? But we don't take the time to really think about what, what am I promising? <laughs> and what is God really holding me accountable to? So back to my question, is it possible that the reason that God is so distant or does not answer your prayers is because of the way that you treat people and more specifically how you are treating your spouse? 
Is it possible that all of your fasting and praying and promises to God are useless because the real issue is that you are mistreating one of his sons or one of his daughters? This isn't the only place. <laughs> Why are they laughing? I'm like, I miss something. This ain't, I'd be like, Lord, I, I got to reread and pray about this. <laughs> this is not the only place that this idea is found in Scripture. And what I want to reiterate, I want to reiterate this, that the, 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 this passage is talking mostly to the husbands. <laughs> I do want to reiterate that. <laughs> it's, it's talking mostly to the husbands. We can apply it to the wife, behaviors of our wives, but the passage that, passage that we're looking at is speaking specifically to the husbands. Uh, and when we look at uh, other passages that are related to this, right, we look at Ephesians chapter, f- um, chapter 5, where we talk about husbands and wives, right? Of course, it says wives... Submit to your husbands, okay? And so that goes on for about two verses. And then Paul spends the next five or six verses telling the husbands what they need to do, okay? The emphasis is always mostly on the men, right? Because the leadership of your household is always going to rise or fall based on the leadership of the husband. That's why it's important that women, side note, as you, as you choose, that you, you choose someone who is, is as mature in Christ as you or more mature. Because if not, you're going to struggle. But let me, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3 real quick. I'm going to read it to you. You don't have to, don't have to turn to this. I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. I, I like the way that this works out in this, uh, in, in, in here again. He starts out at the beginning about wives, what wives um, um, should do. But listen to what he says to the husbands. He says, verse 7, You husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. So again, husbands, make sure you treat my daughter correctly or don't expect me to answer any of your prayers. That's amazing. (laughs) That is amazing to me. God takes faithfulness to your spouse and your wedding vows very seriously. And notice that the text isn't addressing infidelity. I want to say that again. It is not addressing infidelity. These men were not cheating on their wives. The men were divorcing their wives to marry younger foreign women. That was the infidelity. The divorce is the unfaithfulness. So when he says you are being unfaithful to her, he's talking about the divorce. You are leaving the wife that you promised to be faithful to, and you are finding these younger women, and like, wow, my wife don't look like that no more. (laughs) (laughs) So you're leaving your wife. (laughs) I'm glad I ain't hear nothing what y'all said. 
You're leaving your wife for these younger women, and that is being unfaithful to her and the promises that you made before God. Is everyone with me? All right. Now, many people have a problem with this idea of the permanence of marriage, right? Um, In fact, I read an article this week that said the church's teaching on the permanence of marriage um, is partly to blame for the harm of women, right? So the, the church teaching that you should try to save your marriage and not divorce is responsible for harm that is done towards women. And I would actually argue that the opposite of that statement, the permanence of marriage is actually designed to protect women because then, of course, we could actually see it then men, women did not really work outside the home, right? The husbands were the landowners and things like that. So if you divorced your wife, she was left destitute, right? So, but then and now women tend to suffer more financially and otherwise due to a divorce, right? So men, you can divorce, you can just move on about your business, but your wife has to take care of the children. She has to also still work, right? She, she has all of these responsibilities that, that men don't oftentimes have to address. So, so the permanence of marriage is not meant to harm women, it is actually meant to protect women. And the restriction on divorce is partially designed as a protection against such harm. God doesn't want someone to take the best years of your life and then discard you for someone younger. Like the men in Israel were doing. You know, I was, I was, as I was working my way through this, something actually dawned on me. Okay. And so Janita, she, uh, she's probably not going to remember this, but uh, she might do. I don't know. But, um, I don't know, early on in our marriage, right, I would joke, right, so we, we would get it like, you know, we would have these little arguments or intense fellowships, as the saints like to call them, and, um, and so, and so I, I, I would joke and say, listen, you only get 50 years with me. After, after 50 years, I'm going to find a younger woman, right, and so, and then it dawned on me, I'm going to be like 75 years, <laughs> 75 years old, right, but, but she would get so mad, when I'm like, what is wrong? It's just a joke. Why are, you, why are you getting upset about this, right? And it really did not dawn on me until I'm working my way through Malachi why she actually gets so mad. This is exactly what the men of Israel were doing. They were marrying their wives when they were young. God says, the wife of your youth. Okay. You were, you were in love. You spent all of this time together. She was your backbone. She helped you build that company. You made so much money and you now have all of this lifestyle that you all enjoy together. She was there for you. But now that she is older, you want to find someone younger. You've taken the best years of her life She has built you up and encouraged you. And now you want to give all of that to someone younger. That's the theme of all those Lifetime movies. Okay. But listen, so I've recognized why she's, uh, why she got upset about it in hindsight, right? Because, because that happens so regularly this person is left destitute, 
And then all that she has invested in the relationship is now given to someone younger. Not because she's done something wrong, but just because the other person is younger. And you feel that that person is more vibrant or fun or whatever. Peter Adams says, it is because God wanted to protect women from being treated that way that he declares, I hate divorce. God wants to protect women. That's why he says, I hate divorce. And therefore, God stands watch over their marriages. <clears throat> End quote. Regardless of how we feel about divorce or the justification that is given for it, God has a purpose for its restriction, and that restriction includes the protection of women. A second reason um, God ignored the people's prayer and why God takes our wedding vows so seriously is God has a specific goal in mind with our marriages. Verse 15 from the New Living Translation, it says, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. God wants to use your marriage to produce the next generation of godly Christians. Divorce puts that goal in jeopardy. God wants to use the relationship between your husband and wife to produce the next generation of Christians and divorce puts that in jeopardy. And in this sense, the permanence of marriage is also a protection for your children. Most people don't think of it this way, but healthy Christian marriages are the greatest evangelism and discipleship tool God has given the church. Right? This was a research done by Barna, a Barna Research Group that says, 94% of people who come to faith in Christ do so before the age of 18. 94%. That means that if you aren't sharing the gospel with your children and raising them in church and helping them to come to know Christ at an early age, after they turn 16, they only have a 6% chance of not going to hell. Only 6%. Only 6% of people come to Christ after the age of 6. I'm, I'm sorry, after the age of 18. Marriages and getting our children to come to know Jesus at an early age is extremely important. It affects their eternity. So, healthy Christian marriages is the greatest evangelism tool and discipleship tool that God has given the church. Christian couples who are committed to God, to one another, and to the church give their children the stability necessary to develop their own intimate relationship with God. Divorce robs children of their stability and throws into question whether or not God is a good father. I mean, it's kind of hard accepting the fatherhood of God when you barely see your own father. If you don't even know him, right? Now, why do I, I bring this up? Why am I addressing it this way? And I'm addressing it this way so that we can 
Um, because oftentimes in divorce, we are only thinking about ourselves, our happiness, right? Our needs, what I'm not getting. And, and children usually are an afterthought when it comes to divorce. So we need to think about how this, how divorce also impacts our children, because as I said, it's not only a protection for, 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 the, for women, right? It is also a protection for, for children. Um, in an article from familymeans.org, we see the natural impact of divorce on children. Some of the most common effects are poor performance in academics, loss of interest in social activities, difficulty adapting to change, emotional sensitivity, anger and irritability, feelings of guilt, the introduction of destructive behavior, an increase in health problems, and a loss of faith in marriage and the family unit. And with all of these challenges facing children of divorce, is there any wonder why it is so difficult for them to focus on the fact that Jesus loved them and has died to save them from their sin? I mean, it's kind of hard to think about that when you are, you know, being shuttled from household to household each week. When you, when you are having to choose, am I going to stay with mommy for Christmas or am I going to stay for daddy for Christmas, knowing that it is going to hurt somebody's feelings that you're going to pick one and not the other. It, it's kind of hard to focus on Jesus when you're living in two different households with two different sets of rules and you get to pick and choose which fan, um, house you want to stay in and it's usually the one with the most lenient rules kind of hard to become a godly offspring when you can pick and choose the rules that you as the child get to live under. Divorce robs God of the very thing that he designed your marriage to produce, a relationship with children that are devoted to living for him. In the rest of the passage, God advises us on what we need to do in order to safeguard our marriages and by extension to get God to answer our prayers. Right. So what's the solution? How do we how do we safeguard and protect our marriages? How do we make sure God answers our prayer? And I think that God answers that in the rest of, uh, rest of this passage. In the middle of the passage, we get God's greatest insight on how he views marriage. Right. He says, so guard your heart, remain loyal to the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's army. So guard your heart, do not be unfaithful to your wife. That's verses 15 through 16. Here we see that God hates divorce and we find out the reason why. The reason that God hates divorce is because, again, we need to see this from God's perspective. God hates divorce because God equates divorce with violence and cruelty. God equates divorce with violence and with cruelty. Notice when he says you cover your garment with violence, he's not talking about uh, domestic violence. This is not about physical, physical violence. The Jews at this time had a practice when they uh, found the person that they wanted to marry, they would take a garment and they would drape it over the, over the woman, woman's shoulders, right? Symbolizing that this is the person that I'm choosing for marriage, right? So, so draping this garment over the woman was a symbol of their wedded trust, right? 
I'm pledging that I'm going to be, to be faithful um, to you. Divorce was taking, as Walt Takaza says, divorce is taking a symbol of wedded trust and making it an agent of violence towards these women. Think about it. A, a man takes his garment, he spreads it over his wife saying that I love you, I'm going to be faithful to you, you can depend on me, and then after being married so many years, he takes that same garment and he drapes it around somebody else. That's covering your garment with violence. It is overwhelming your wife with cruelty. Now, why does God see divorce in this way? And I think the answer <laughs> is found in the advice that God gives to these husbands. And I think that it can also be applicable to each wife. In this passage, God says twice, twice he says this. You can look at, at the passage. He says, guard your hearts and be faithful to your wife. Guard your heart and remain faithful to your wife. <clears throat> God is digging down to the root cause of divorce. If we are honest, the real reason to, for divorce has very little to do with the other person, has very little to do with the other person, and it has a lot to do what, with what is going on in our own hearts. I know you all don't agree with me on that. So let's take a look. He says that you need to guard your heart. So let me ask you a couple questions. After, <laughs> this is rhetorical, okay? I need everyone to look at me. Okay, all right, look at me. <laughs> After being with your spouse for a few years or a few decades now, knowing all that you know about him or her, okay? So I know that when you married them, you didn't really, you know, you may have been with them for a long time, you, or you may have been with them a short time, you really didn't know. But now they've grown to be the person that they are, okay? So knowing everything that you know about him or her now, in your heart, where no one else can see except you and God, what thoughts, feelings, and images do you allow to go unchecked about that person? Look at me, look at me, look at me. Look at, let's just think about it. You, you, you know the thoughts and images and feelings you have about your spouse that you allow to run unchecked in your heart. This is why God says, God, your heart. Do you wish that you were single again? Or that you could go back in time and never have gotten married? Do you daydream about what your life would be like as a single person or being with someone else? Do you allow lust to run rampant in your heart? Okay, I'm going to stay with my wife, but I'm going to go over there and, you know, get all the pleasures that I want. Do you let these, these thoughts run rampant in your heart? 
Do you value being happy more than you value your spouse? Do you find yourself comparing your spouse or your marriage to other people's spouses or other people's marriages? I could continue. I'm running out of time. (laughs) 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 The point I'm trying to make, (laughs) the point I'm trying to make (laughs) is divorce usually has very little to do with the other person and a lot to do what we allow in our own hearts to take place. The things that we allow to run unchecked in our hearts is the real cause of divorce. Or as Jesus said, divorce is called, caused by the hardness of your hearts. Matthew 19, 8. Now, this is why God hates divorce. Number one, it harms women. Number two, it harms children. And number three, it harms you. You just don't recognize it. The, the, the reason that it is harming you is because, and, and, and this is the reason why God is not answering your prayer. <laughs> the reason that it is, God doesn't answer your prayer and because that is harming you is because not only has your heart grown cold towards God, I mean, towards your spouse, but harboring these sinful things in your heart is proof that your heart has grown cold towards God. It's not the fact that, I've, that I'm hard-hearted towards my spouse, but the fact that I allow lust to run rampant in my heart, unforgiveness to run rampant in my heart, you know, desiring to be single and having that life. The reason that, I, that I'm allowing these things to run rampant in my heart is because I've allowed my circumstances to change the way I see God. That's why God hates divorce. Because we cannot separate the two things, like I said last week. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love God whom you have not seen, John says, and and not love the people you see every day. And my reverse to that is that you cannot love people or hate people and that same feeling not get transferred over to God. If you hate your spouse, it is a very short step and a very short amount of time before that gets communicated to God. God, why are you allowing me to go through this? God, why you didn't fix this? God, why didn't you change my spouse? Why didn't why you know, why am I keep struggling with this over and over and over again? And so because God is not answering because God is not fixing the solution, I'm taking it on myself to solve this. And so the unfaithfulness is not just uh, to your spouse. The unfaithfulness is to God because you're not trusting God to fix it. You're not trusting God to change you and your spouse. In essence, you are just covering the coldness with religious activity and church attendance 
like you are covering your true feelings about your spouse with fake actions of love. It get on my nerves, but it's Valentine's Day. I'm going to still buy him some flowers. <laughs> Here, honey. God didn't give me what I want, but I'm still going to go to church because I know pastor going to be like, oh, why you ain't coming to church? (laughs) We treat God the same way we treat people. You cannot have a good relationship with God and have a bad relationship with people. That's not possible. We treat God the same way we treat other people because God is a person. If you are a person that takes advantage of people, You're going to try to take advantage of God. It's not going to (laughs) work. But these things go hand in hand. When God says, God, your heart. When God God says, God, your heart, he means that you have to put to death anything in your heart that will drive a wedge between you and your spouse. Anything that it, that is that could come between you and your spouse, you have to put that to death. And that includes things that are true about your spouse. Let me say that again. <laughs> it might be true, the things that you feel about your spouse. <sighs> they get on my nerves. Why did, they don't do X, Y, Z. They might not. You have to put that to death, though. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7, that genuine love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things because love never fails. We don't keep a record of wrong against our spouse. We have to put that to death. Guarding our hearts causes us to rely on God to love our spouse, even when they are unlovable, because that is how God has shown us love through Jesus. Right. Our relationship with our spouses and with anybody for that matter is just a reflection of what God has done for us. When we like, man, they get on my nerves. They did this wrong. They did that wrong. They did this wrong. And I'm, I'm out of here. God is sitting back thinking. I wonder how they would feel if I did that to them. Jesus is like, I I died for them, and they still do this wrong, they do that wrong, they do this wrong, and yet I have said to them, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because God is trying to make his children faithful like he is faithful. Now, again, I want to end this by reiterating the point that I'm making. Now, again, um, we could get into a slew of what ifs, what about this scenario, or whatever, okay? And and, uh, again, there are some valid questions about, you know, well, what about this scenario, whatever. And we can have, we could talk about valid, valid scenarios again. But w- what I think is at issue, even when we talk about these valid scenarios, right? 
Um, I think at, at issue is how do we see marriage? How do, how do we see marriage, right? Do, do we see marriage the same way that God sees it? Uh, one, one commentary I read, he says that the reason that God hates divorce is because he loves marriage so much, <laughs> right? Do we love marriage? Now, in our society, dance is, is overwhelmingly no, <laughs> right? N- no, it, I mean, marriage is easy to get into and just as easy to get out of. Okay. We take surveys that says, you know, most people now are just like, well, marriage is not that big of a deal, okay. right? I was talking to somebody the other night, and they were saying, they were, uh, the, uh, they were saying that they were reading something that said um, that um, – People don't see the purpose uh, of, of marriage, at least men. Men don't see the value in marriage. And the reason that men don't see the value in marriage is because they're getting all of the benefits of marriage outside of marriage. So what is the purpose of marriage? Right. We, we don't value it. Okay. Um, however, right, if we start to see marriage the way God sees it, and we really t- start to take the vows of marriage seriously the way God sees it number one some of us wouldn't get married we like mm, I don't I'm gonna have to wait to the for the one that God sent me <laughs> right like we, we we would be way more serious about entering into this this union than than what we currently are right um and on the flip side we would fight way more hard to make sure we maintain those relationships and, and again, I, I understand there are going to be some that slip through the crack, right? But in church, it should be less slipping through the cracks than in the world. And currently, all studies show that the saints are slipping through the cracks at the same rate as everybody else in the world. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, what is the point that wraps all of this together? Okay, we're back to the point that Malachi is making in the original question, is not God our Father? Hasn't he made all of us one? The, the, the fact that we call God our Father, it, 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 it forces us, it requires us to make difficult choices that people in the world don't have to make. The, the, the fatherhood of God causes us to think through the implications of all of our decisions before we make them to recognize it's going to have an impact on us. It's going to have an impact on our families. It's going to have an impact on the gospel. It's going to have an impact on the church. Right. I mean, I, 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 I can tell you stories about of people who with families, they were married, they were together they love their church and then they get divorced who's leaving the church we can't stay at the same church that's awkward (laughs) right especially since you know like you know we like to get remarried like a month after the signatures are so now you got brother so-and-so sitting on the left side of the church with the new new boo You know, and then 
sister so-and-so sitting on the right side of the church and it, it's just you know this is just bad all the way around okay like our, our decisions affect not only ourselves it affects the church and because of the fatherhood of god he has united us as one we have to think through the implications of all of these things how is this going to impact every relationship not just i'm not happy i want to be happy god wants me to be happy now um, as I'm closing this up, um, I, I know that we, t- we tend to just, uh, we, we tend to able only to hear one sermon at a time. Okay. I, I get that. Okay. My mind doesn't work like that. A- as I'm hearing things, I'm like, my mind is like, like I'm, I'm putting a whole bunch of things together. Um, and I, I, I want us to be able to, um, fit every message within the broader context of everything that I have taught you for the last 12 years, okay? Now, I I say that because when we come to difficult messages like this, again, people tend to, um, you know, start to feel sadness or guilt or frustration or, you know, or maybe I could have made differences or whatever. People start to take, uh, uh, like, messages personal, right? Um, and, and again, I'm, I don't want uh, anyone to leave out of here, um, with, uh, taking anything personal or with uh, regrets or anything like this, right? That's not the purpose that of the, of the passage. That's not even the purpose of the, of, 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 of the sermon. That's not even the purpose of the passage. The purpose of the passage is guard your heart and make sure you are faithful to your wife. <laughs> okay. Um, th- that, that's the point It's it is it, not talking about go in the past and, 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 and beat yourself up or fix things. That's not the whole point. Okay. The, the point of the passage is from this day forward, how do you allow the fatherhood of God to inform all of your decisions? You can't go in the past and fix anything. You can't go in the past and change anything. As a matter of fact, God says, I've taken those things and I've cast them into a sea of forgetfulness, Right. God's forgotten about it. You forget about it. Okay. From this day on, how do I take the fatherhood of God and the relationship that I have to all of God's people into account in all of the decisions that I make? That is what we should walk away from here. That's what God is trying to is trying to teach here. As I as I let these things inform my relationships, right? It benefits myself, my family, you know, the church, all of these things. That's how we move forward. Uh, Because Malachi is trying to correct uh, problems in the community that's impacting the the community and the individual relationship with God. And so as as we're working through this, I want you all to to try to pull from all of the things that that, that you've learned and, 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 and let it all kind of simmer together, right? Like a crock pot. <laughs> okay. Let, let it all work together. Um, and prayerfully, nobody will, um, will, will leave here with, um, any kind of doubt as to how God loves them individually. Again, God's love for you is not in doubt. He can love you and not answer your prayers until you get it together. <laughs> Okay, Um, but his love for you is not in doubt. And I don't want anyone leaving here with that 
um, that thought or impression. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you, Lord, that you have modeled our relationship with you. Um, uh, You have modeled all of our personal relationships, especially the relationship of marriage, on our relationship with you. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that you are not like us. You do not hold our sins and our faults against us. As I said, you, you take those things and you cast them into a sea of forgetfulness, and you have promised that you will hold those things against us no more. As Paul says in Ephesians, we are supposed to be imitators of God as dear children. Teach us how to imitate you. The same way that you have forgiven us, I pray that you would place forgiveness in our hearts. I pray, Lord, the same way that you say that you will never leave us nor forsake us, I pray that you would teach us to have that that same level of faithfulness with our spouse. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us uh, to take the vows that we have, have taken before you very seriously because you hold us accountable to those things help us to see that as you one commentator says about the people of israel in essence you were saying if you want to be separate from the benefits of your spouse you will be separate from the benefits that come from me and that's why you don't answer our prayers i pray lord that you would help us to see that having you as our father requires us to treat your children and our brothers and sisters in Christ a certain way. Lord, we will struggle. We will fail. We have often failed, including me. All of us have failed in in these areas of our lives. But Lord, you have said you will never leave us nor forsake us. And you have given us your spirit to strengthen us and to encourage us to walk in a way that pleases you. I pray, Lord, that no one leaves here Uh, with with sadness or regret or in any way. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to still, as we wrestle with your word, uh, to recognize that your word is true. And it's our responsibility to to come up to the level uh, uh, that you have stated in your word. I pray that you would help us to remember the passage in Hebrews chapter 12 that we have read that the purpose of your discipline, the purpose of your training is so that we might share your holiness. Because honestly, Lord, there's no way for us to be truly happy until we are truly holy. We thank you now for all these things. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, Let me give you this passage for next Sunday. You can read it five times. We're going to read chapter 2, verse 17, down to chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 17, down to chapter 3, verse 6. And uh, it'll be a little easier than the last two Sundays. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit. But um, you can work on reading that for this uh, this week. We'll pick up there on Sunday. Amen.
Amen. Before we close out, let us celebrate anyone who has had a birthday in the month of June.